Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Buertes. And I'm Jacob Shackman. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. Hello and welcome everyone to the Polymer Science Podcast. My name is Jacob Sheckman, and today my guest is Dr. Barney Grubbs. Dr. Barney Grubbs, thank you so much for being here with me today. How are you? Thanks, Jacob. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks. And, you know, one thing I, I want to bring up first is uh, I, I've been using Calendly. It's been really easy for booking these interviews. And the, the question I had at the end, which is just an optional thing, and it helps me sort of get the show going, is what do you feel happy about today? And <laughs> se- several people have, have – uh, I have lots of interviews coming up, so it's very exciting. But you have given the most detailed answer, and I really appreciate that. If I can go I'll read this real quick, what you were happy about your family. Your kids started 10th grade on September yeah. nine days ago. Nine days ago. Yeah. That's amazing. I, what was that experience like? Um, you know, it's kind of fun and but also frightening to relive uh, secondhand what the, I guess, both the joys and the horrors of uh, starting high school. And, yeah. And sort of figuring everything out because our, our district, it's the first, 10th grade is the first year you're at the high school. So. Oh, okay. I the, see. I see. We do 10 through 12. So it's, uh, you know, it's a little dramatic, but it's, it's good. It's exciting. The most for, tra- for- well, yeah, the most traumatic part is the bus comes at like six thirty in the morning. Oh my gosh! Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. hopefully that's that's uh, prepping them for later on in life when yeah you know you got to take advantage yeah. of those mornings. And some of the other yeah. things you you mentioned. Well, let me read this here. There's still a few months before it gets really cold, and you're up at Stony Brook. That's is that upstate yeah. New York? It's on Long Island. So on Long Island. Gets, okay, okay. So it never gets really cold. Well, what's what's really cold places. to you? Because I'm going to guess mildly cold there is really cold to me. Yeah. No, I would bet it would be. But after living, <laughs> you know, I did my postdoc at Minnesota and started out as a faculty member up in New Hampshire at Dartmouth College, which are both uh, both pretty cold places. Um, you know, Long Island, we get maybe a week. Every other winter that gets into the teens, but mostly it's around free, freezing and a little windy, but well, still a lot colder than the Hattiesburg. Yeah, yeah, that that is <laughs> most certain. You know what? There is a lot more of on Long Island that I would love for it to be here is lacrosse. I'm a huge lacrosse yeah. guy, and uh, I, I walk around with my lacrosse stick around Hattiesburg, or just from from the car to the lab. I'll carry it with me and. When I was first here, my first couple of years, someone would see the lacrosse stick and they'd be like, oh, is that for Quidditch? And I, <laughs> like, I have to just slouch my shoulders. And I can't be too upset. I actually did play Quidditch for five years, but that is coincidence yeah. that they landed on that. I was so sad. No one knows what lacrosse is here. And, and so the, the last thing on your note, uh, you said in parentheses, also the Dodgers are doing well. And I, I bring that, oh, yeah. you know, as a lacrosse person, I'm not a huge baseball fan. But I'm from the Central Coast, and I'm associated with the Giants. I know we have a series coming up. Ah, I'm looking forward yeah, to yeah. the Giants having another sweep like they did the Braves. Yeah. No, it's a good rivalry. But uh, <laughs> this year, I think the Dodgers got the better of them. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be honest. I actually I have no – I looked at the schedule of, of what the yeah. Gi- who the Giants played and who they play 10 minutes before we started this, just so I can okay. be relevant <laughs> to it. But uh, – 
Yeah, that's great. So, I, you know, thanks for yeah. for filling that out. I'm I'm glad that you have so many things going for you to to keep you happy these days. So let's let's talk a little bit more about you and and uh, who you are. So tell us where you're from and and your upbringing a little bit. Yeah, so I was born in in uh, Lansing, Michigan, in 1972. But then we moved to California to Pasadena in 1978. So I mostly grew up in um, mostly grew up in California for, for school and junior high and high school. And then um, I stayed in, stayed pretty close to Los Angeles for college at the Mona College, and then decided I really needed to escape California and ended up going to, to Cornell for grad school, which was, took a lot of adjustment like <laughs> to go from a big, warm city to a small town in upstate New York. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, after that, it's just been kind of moving around the country for typical academic sort of thing. The sure. guy I was working for at Cornell moved to Berkeley, so I was there for a little while. Then, like I said before, did a postdoc at Minnesota and then mm-hmm. moved to Dartmouth and then to Long Island. So exclusively the, the outskirts of our country. You went to the right, farthest right, places right. that you can get. Yeah. Yeah. I've missed most of the South and the Southeast apart from short, short trips. But. Yeah. Well, I, I love Hattiesburg, but I, I, yeah. can't, I can't wait to not be in the Southern weather anymore at, at the very least. <laughs> so talk, talk to me a, a, a little bit about your, the, some of those stops. So what, what uh, you went to Cornell for grad school. What, let's say, yeah. what was your, the focus of your work in graduate school? So I guess if I, when I started as a, or when I was finishing up as an undergrad, we had to write a, a thesis. It was just a literature thesis, but I got interested in, um, in Dendromers. And um, I get because I'd done a little bit of I did a little bit little bit of polymer work um, as a over the summer as an undergrad with Bruce Novak at Berkeley and kind of got exposed to to polymer science. Um, but I got interested in Denver's and went to Cornell to work for Jean Frechet and actually ended up joining his group. And so, but then I didn't actually work on. Dendermers. I ended up doing cationic polymerization, and then it was right around the time that uh, controlled free radical polymerization was really getting big. So we started doing nitroxide mediated polymerization, and then some ATRP. And it was a few years before Raft had been uh, really, really developed. Mostly using cationic and radical polymerization to make branched branch polymers. And th- so this was this was all through the course of your. Your graduate work, you, you started on Dendromers and started moving toward? Well, the initial impetus for joining the group was because I was interested in Dendromers, but I never ended up, you know, it's a big enough group and there are enough other projects. Right, right. I ended up only watching other people run these massive columns with <laughs> the same reactions over and over again. <laughs> that's in the end, I didn't really miss, feel like I missed out by not, yeah. not making Dendromers. That's interesting. That's That seems to be a common outcome for graduate students, right? You, you go to grad school, you have this idea of what you might be starting on, and by the end of your time there, it is you haven't even touched that initial idea. It's completely different. Yeah, and I think it's the, you know, it's the right way to do things. You know, you don't, it's kind of like when you go to college, you don't really know. You might have an idea of what you want to study your major in, but as you get exposed to other things, you end up changing your path. And 
you know, it's probably usually for the best. But, right, but, right. And it's the same as, you know, being a professor too. You, you know, you come up like, oh, I'll, I'll do these projects and it'll be great. And then, you know, you figure out three of them don't work and you end up <laughs> doing something else completely different. So. You have a, a few sad grad students and you just got to give yeah. them something else. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. So you started moving toward controlled free radical polymerizations at the by the end of your graduate school work at Cornell. Yeah, so it was around, you know, 1994, 1995 were the first papers on using tempo and other nitroxides to control polymerization from um, Michael George's at uh, um, at Xerox and Craig Hawker at IBM and a couple other people. So you you finished up at Cornell and then was it Berkeley next or Minnesota next? Well, in my third year, I think Frechet was going to move to excuse me, Frechet moved to to Berkeley and most of the group moved with him. Mm-hmm. So I was there for probably a year and a half finishing things up. To tie into the earlier work, I did spend a week or two on two separate occasions visiting Craig Hawker's lab at IBM. So got to do some nitroxide work there. Um, and at Berkeley, I went out to visit Virgil Perchek's lab, at, who was at Case Western at the time, a few times to, to do some more ATRP-based things. But yeah, mostly at Berkeley, generally doing the same kind of mostly radical polymerization. To... Sure. And so when you finished up there, what, did you carry on with more um, living polymerization techniques and studies in your postdoctoral set work? Yeah. So when I was looking at postdocs, I, kind of, I wanted to do something that would be a little, you know, something a little different. Mm-hmm. And you know, I thought about going more biological, which a lot of people were doing at the time, um, but ultimately ended up going to work for Frank Bates to learn more about polymer physics of blockopolymers and um, some living anionic polymerization, which was something I hadn't really done much of before because it was seemed kind of scary. And I still think it's kind of scary, but it was a... You just um, now, you perked up when it when it, it hit your brain. Yeah. You sat up and you said, yeah. and, an, anionic. What, what, what is it about anionic polymerization? Why why is that so different? What What is a slightly well, frightening? Well, you know, you can do it... There are lots of different ways to do it. And, you know, if you look at papers from Nikos Hydrocrates, you can see all the high vacuum apparatus that you use if you really want to do things the right way. But you know, that also involves spending a year learning how to blow glass. And oh my gosh! Not to, you know, not messing up the glass before you do the reaction. Um, but you know, ultimately, it comes down to having to work with alkyl lithiums, especially for the simple block copolymer systems, a lot of them involve really um, low boiling monomers like isoprene and butadiene and ethylene oxide, the latter, which is also really not something you want to you want to breathe much of. And so trying to deal with these things, you know, at realistic pressures in glassware with very reactive um, organolithium reagents around is can be a little dicey. Sure. There's a lot of things to be aware of. Yeah. And, you know, we were using a, we had a big THF still in the lab. (sighs) Was, we didn't have any problems while I was there, but a couple of years later, there was a pretty big accident. Um, Then everyone was okay, but some people spent time in the hospital with third degree burns. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow, and this this is from doing these anionic reactions. Well, this is this is from a THF still oh. flashing. Oh, which is uh, 
any idea what led to that? Uh, my best understanding is that so the THF was being dried over um, potassium metal and benzophenone, so you get the nice bright purple ketil when it's dry. Um, but I think what was happening is that people were re re regenerating the, the still and somehow it bumped or something happened and some molten potassium Oof. and THF got sprayed in the air. And that just set the whole thing. Oh, my God. Which, yeah. Okay. That's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, so, I, you, know, I, you know, since then I've tried never have as few stills as possible and in the lab and also tried to avoid doing anionic polymerization unless we really had to. Right. Right. All right. So where did you go after your postdoc? Yeah. Yeah. So after my postdoc where I guess I should add, I started doing anionic polymerization, but then switched back into radical polymerization because it was a lot easier to make uh, <laughs> things. So it's hard to escape. <laughs> so after that, um, it was a long season of trying to get an academic job and this was around 2000 i guess and it was complicated by the fact that um, my wife was also looking for an academic job at the same time so we were trying to find jobs in the same general region and it worked out that i ended up at um, at dartmouth college and she was at holy cross which you know if you're far away it looks kind of close but it's a three-hour drive which is a, a rough it could be a lot worse could have been yeah yeah it could have been worse though a three-hour drive in the middle of a New Hampshire winter is not uh, oh, not, not always great either. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so we did that for a while, and then um, in 2009, we both were able to get jobs down here at Stony Brook and and moved here. Is your wife also in polymer science? She has been. She worked for she did a postdoc with uh, Mark Hillmeyer and, and Bill Tolman on some lactide polymerization, but she's yeah. doing more sustainability related chemistry and environmental science to yeah. sorts of things now. I, I, I don't mind me to deviate too much, but I, just to know more about you and your wife, where did you meet in grad school? Yeah, she got her PhD with Dave Collum. Yeah, awesome. Which is another uh, <laughs> another story entirely, but uh, so organolithium. I'm going to count on you to make sure that she helps my podcast and listens to this episode. She'll, she'll enjoy okay. this, right? <laughs> we'll pump up your uh, subscriber numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's time to pad those stats. I got to get everything rising here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, then you, you you both eventually moved down to Stony Brook. And how, how long ago was that? How long have you been at Stony Brook? Started here in January of 2009. 2009. All right. So what, 13 years now. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, <laughs> good night. Congrats for you. That's awesome. Yeah. No, and I thinking the other day it might be the longest I've lived in one place ever in my life. So it's a pretty good place so far. Is what it yeah, sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Minus the cold, I, I this is just going to be an extra topic of conversation throughout this <laughs> podcast. You know, I think actually every time I do an interview and weather comes up, I it might be apparent to our listeners now that I'm just not a fan of the cold. But um, back to the the topic of the show, how can you talk to me about how your research has evolved since you started at Stony Brook? So it's evolved quite a bit. When I started, I also was doing work over at Brookhaven National Lab. So we started doing some some energy-related research, which had a bit of a learning curve. But we started looking at doing some um, polymerization of conjugated monomers to make different types of polymers, which you know, we did a little bit there with some Selenophenes and 
telurophenes and things you wouldn't really want to <laughs> look at. And we actually got back into some um, using epoxidized uh, polyisoprene blocks uh, for atomic layer deposition of metals, metal aluminums and other alkyl metals, which was sort of entertaining. But DOE-funded labs tend to drift around a lot in what they want you to do, so we haven't done as much with them in recent years. But I guess the biggest shift has been probably it's probably five years ago now or six years ago i was trying to think about new things to to do and you know i'd reached a point where every well trying to do things related to sustainability recyclability and you know the obvious thing to do is to stick an acrylate group on a biomolecule and polymerize that and you know it didn't i couldn't think of anything that hadn't already been done better in that angle so started thinking about you know instead of polymerizing carbon carbon double bonds which give you tough, hard to recycle backbones, thinking about aldehydes um, to make polyacetal backbones, which I can remember in grad school, going back and trying to look up research from from Staudinger and all these old polymer chemists and being shocked that they were looking at polymerization of formaldehyde and things that just didn't seem relevant to the chemistry we were thinking about at the time with, with controlled radical stuff. but going back and thinking about it and finding out that Monsanto, they'd been looking at glyoxylate esters as monomers for making um, detergent builders. So polyanions that um, would be degradable later on. And then there was some work in Japan to polymerize glyoxylic acid on its own, thought about as an analog to acrylic acid, replacing the carbon-carbon double bond with the carbon-oxygen double bond. You know, it's a classic thing where you're like, oh, this would be a great idea. And then you look in the literature and see that a bunch of people have already <laughs> looked at it. Um, but then it turns out that, you know, we made some efforts to try to polymerize glyoxylic acid that were completely unsuccessful. But uh, about a year or so in, there were some really nice papers that came from Beth uh, Gillies' group at University of Western Ontario looking at ethyl glyoxylate polymerization. And so we were able to use what they had learned and I think figure out some new things about about the polymerization, but it, you know, it wouldn't have been possible without without um, her her group's help. So we, you know, we've struggled to purify the monomers and get things to work. And eventually, my student just sent an email message to her and asked about purification, and she was really helpful and sent detail. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it probably didn't hurt that. I guess she also got her PhD with Frechet, you know, but probably ten years after. Not ten years, six or seven years after I was there. So sure, there's some regardless. I, I think it's really nice to see that that form of a teamwork in the community, right? Being able oh, to yeah, just reach just, out. That's great. Yeah. No, I mean I've always tried to help where I can, so it's great to see you. Mm -hmm. Well, this that that's a bringing up the glyoxylic acid. Perfect transition, given going to your recent papers on the, the polymerization of ethyl glyoxylate, yeah. which you talked about. I'll, I'll read the title of a paper here. Uh, in 2021, you published Amine-Catalyzed Chain Polymerization of Ethyl Glyoxylate from Alcohol and Thiol Initiators. Thrilling title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but it, it, was, it was a great, entertaining paper to read, very informative. I think something good for us to focus on here. I, it seems to some really exciting work coming out of your group on this topic. We spoke a little bit before we started as to what what is the the purpose? Why 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 do this sort of thing? Is it we've talked about uh, we being myself and other guests yeah. in the past 
have talked about upcycling and, and uh, that's why we focus on polyacetals a lot now in this community. But what are some of the other advantages of having a depolymerizable polymer, right? Why, why focus on making these polyacetals using ethyl glyoxalate in the first place? Yeah. So, I mean, my general feeling on the, this sort of thing is that any feasible plan for handling polymer waste is going to be way beyond what myself as a simple polymer chemist can can really grasp. So it's going to, you know, it's going to take probably a lot more um, policy work to get things to actually be realistic. So I think what we can do as chemists is, you know, with what I like with the polyacetals and the glyoxalates is that you've got simple monomers. So, you know, things like ethyl glyoxalate are built up of two, two carbon fragments. So you could potentially make it from ethanol or sugar or other, other things. It's, it's a, um, glyoxalic acid is in a couple of different biochemical, um, metabolic cycles. So it's, it's around, it's, you know, it's probably pretty nasty on its own and it's probably mostly present as the hydrate, but it's, it's there. Um, and as a polymer, you know, it's got the potential that, you know, if you've got a closed supply stream, if you can use it, recover it completely, it's, there's a built-in way to convert it back to the monomer. So you could chemically recycle, at least conceptually, by the acidic um, hydrolysis of the acetal groups. And we've found out more recently, it turns out to be pretty, it's, it's remarkably uh, resistant to acidic hydrolysis. It, you know, it might have something to do with the electron withdrawing ester groups attached, but um, there's at least that potential. Um, you could also, you know, if you hydrolyze it completely, you could get ethanol and glaxolic acid and, you know, upcycle those into other components. Um, and, but I think the most attractive thing is that, you know, it's it's not realistic to rely on having 100% recovery of a material. And so what polyglyoxic acid will do is it's, it's known that um, from a couple studies from some French groups who've done a lot of work in the area that it, you know, if you bury it in the soil, it'll decompose to carbon dioxide within 30 days and the soil shows no apparent, you know, if they plant seeds, they grow it the same way before and after mm -hmm. the treatment. So it's, it's pretty Have innocuous. There been any studies to, to find out what that mechanism goes, how about that degradation pathway? I imagine, you know, it's probably, this is speculation, but I would bet that you get hydrolysis of the ethyl group side chains to the acid, and that undergoes some kind of self-catalyzed depolymerization. Once you get to glycolic acid or ethanol, it's all microbial. But That's amazing. I don't know for sure. Uh, sure, sure. But it, I'm but just it happens. a simple polymer chemist. Yeah, you're yeah. just the chemist. Someone else can yeah. tell you that that's what happens. Yeah. That's fine. In, so also in this paper, one of the other advantages that you mentioned for the, the, the why polymerize aldehydes in the first place is you described that their uh, carbon to oxygen backbone is homologous to polyolefins and vinyl polymers. Yeah. So w yeah. What, what, are, what are some uh, real-world applications of polyolefins and vinyl polymer? Why is it important for this polyacetal backbone to be similar to these other types of polymers. Yeah, so this is also kind of speculative and gets into feelings that are not perhaps not entirely supported by uh, by the science yet. But, oh, we're we're getting a little saucy here. Well, <laughs> 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 well, 
what better place is there for it? Uh, <laughs> you know, if you want to think about not necessarily replacing commodity polymer completely, you know, you'd want to have degradable polymers that would be miscible and compatible uh, and have the same sorts of properties as the existing polymers. And so, you know, the, the naive thought is that, right, if you've got a polyolefin and you just replace every other carbon in the backbone with oxygen, you should get something that's got similar properties. You know, that's not necessarily true with the really simple cases, right? If you look at polyformaldehyde poly, um, or um, delrin or you know, the polymers that you make your little, that make up your little uh, kick clips that go on the rotavap, right? Um, that's pretty different from polyethylene. And, and I, they're not known to be miscible, but they are both highly crystalline and, you know, have some similarities. As you start elaborating the backbone, things start to get a little more similar, but we don't know enough to know how similar, right? So polyethylgloxylate is homologous with polyethylacrylate, which is you know, not, it's not used as much as other types of acrylates, but at least gets us a start to mm -hmm. thinking about similarities. So it, it kind of comes down to if there's potential to apply them in things in the real world, it has to be, be compatible with items that exist, materials that exist already. Yeah, I think that's, you know, you know, you could design things completely new, which, but I think there the barrier to getting large-scale adoption would be so huge that it'd be, you know, it'd have to be a really special material to get people to, to do that. Sure. Okay. And so trying to build things up slowly is probably the best we can do right now. Sure. And you'll, I mean, if you do it that way, you're probably beating your head against the wall a little bit less than trying to reinvent the wheel, right? Yeah, but I mean, but you look at some of the. I got, have you seen any of the work from uh, Brett Helms's group? At, so they're looking at some new types of. Um, I guess they're vitrimer-like materials. They're almost entirely new types of backbones, but they're really cool and they're, uh, you know, they're worth looking at as another option. But again, trying to get that into a a state where you could make a commercial material out of it is a totally. It's it's another another level to get yeah. to. Yeah. Which. Right, being able to control the architecture, the molecular weights, and all that. Actually, um, this is a nice transition. In, in one of the comments in in this paper, we just mentioned it. If you'd like, I could reread the title, but um, uh, you, you there was a comment on being able to fabricate these uh, polyethyl glyoxylate polymers at higher molecular weights that traditionally people were getting, you know, less than two thousand grams per mole. Why why is it beneficial to be able to have higher molecular weights with under controlled polymerizations? Well, you know, it's nice to be able to know you can do it. It's not always clear that you need it once you get up to really high molecular weights. I think, you know, for a lot of the materials applications, it's you know, if if you can get a high molecular if you need a high molecular weight, then the the dis dispersity and the control over the structure might not matter as much. So, mm -hmm. you know, polyethylene and polypropylene, and these things probably have, at high molecular weights, probably have pretty broad dispersities, but are still entirely useful and probably easier to make. But when you have the, I guess, at lower intermediate molecular weights, where you have applications where you want to control composition, or you want to make something that's got the right degree of hydrophilicity and hydrophobicity, there it's important to be able to control, if not the dispersity, or the, you know, the distribution of molecular weights, at least being able to make sure that every chain you start 
has a reactive group at the end that can attach to something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They usually go together, but it's... You mentioned just now being able to control the the structure and architecture too. Can you comment on that? What what are the importances of of being able to have a controlled complex structure? And actually, a follow up: what would you what do you what would you consider our complex polymer structures? Yeah, well, it's you know it's one of these eye of the beholder sorts of things. Um, I guess the pragmatic explanation is that. You know what you need depends on the application that you're going to use it for. For me, I mean, we, my people I work with usually, you know, we're just kind of, we're interested in what we can do with the chemistry and what we can, how far we can push systems to control the structure. And so complexity, we're not trying that hard to get to really you know, lots of different blocks or controlled degrees of branching, or but at least trying to get good control over making enough. One or two blocks could control over how many chain ends have a specific functional group mm-hmm. is is good enough. Um, we tried a little bit to try to control the stereochemistry mm-hmm. of the linkages, but it's been it's been tricky so far. Gotcha. With these the the polyethyl glyoxylate, man, it's a a tongue twister <laughs> trying to skip that one out a bunch of times. But with making these specific polymers. Uh, have you found that the physical properties are close to, say, these polyolefins and uh, and other vinyl yeah, polymers? So we've most we've we've almost entirely looked at just polyethyl glyoxylate right now. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get some other esters and some other systems, but they're close. One of the things we've been trying to look at, which gets to a fundamental polymer science question, is if you make a diblockopolymer of polyethyl glyoxylate and polyethyl acrylate, the two blocks only differ in the backbones. Right? Will the two blocks mix with each other or will they stay phase separated? Because the you know the dogma is that if there's any little difference in chemistry between two blocks, they're probably not going to mix with each other, you know, unless there's some good enthalpic reason for mm-hmm. them to mix. Right. So deuterated polyethylene and regular polyethylene apparently don't mix at reasonable molecular weights, which is always surprises me. Um, yeah, so we're trying to see with these two if, if they'll mix or not. And we're, you know, we're getting, you know, it looks like by DSC that they show a single glass transition temperature at relatively low molecular weights, but we're trying to do some x-ray scattering and some microscopy and other things to really probe it and see. Yeah, yeah. See what's happening. What topic, what is, what is something within polymer science that not, not in your lab, but is something that really is grasping your attention right now. Is there anything happening in the polymer science community that whenever you see it in, in a paper, on a cover, when you read about it, it just is, seems so incredibly interesting to you? There's a lot. Um, you know, it's sort of boring, but... Not to you. What, what I'm most interested in right now is seeing how different types of um, specific catalysis are getting used to make new types of polymers and you know make polymers from things that you wouldn't normally consider monomers which um you know is you know a lot of it's coming from the organic literature but i think there's potential for making some exciting new things there we've been trying to you know we've with the aldehyde polymerization the, the 
not so secret secret of aldehyde is that they're a pain in the ass to work with. Mm -hmm. They react with water. They do all sorts of side reactions. So you got to really purify them well before you you do them. So we've been trying to get to ways to use ketones as monomers, so to make polyketals and you know methacrylate analogs and things. Uh, but those you have the acidic alpha protons on the ketone, so they do all sorts of you know, with, with base catalyzed stuff, they do more ketoenol things than um, coupling. So we've been trying to look at some of the photoelectrochemistry that, and related sorts of things that people like Tristan Lambert at Cornell have used to um, do CH activation and do dehydrogenative coupling. So what we really want to do, and I don't know if it's ever going to happen, is to think about ways to take alcohols and do a dehydrogenative coupling to make an acetal linkage. So then you could do a, you know, make ketals or make thioaldehyde or thioketone derivatives or other things. Mm -hmm. that so it's so opening up new new yeah. methods for types of synthesis, polymer synthesis. Yeah. Um, you know, expanding the types of monomers that you can use to make polymers, which I think will, has the potential to let you get into all sorts of other renewable feedstocks. Yeah, yeah. Tell us why it's important to to have a, a larger library from which to choose a monomer to make your polymer? Well, I mean, again, to not, you know, just to sort of stay agnostic about where things come from, you know, if you know, there, are good re there are good reasons to not rely on petroleum as a feedstock, and um, in the future, it might become necessary to look to other feedstock. So being able to derive materials from that aren't just the the stuff that we use because it's easy to make it from petroleum, I think is 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 going to be beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, right. Because we're, you know, ethylene, propylene, styrene are all pretty cheap. Um, but that's because you can crack yeah. <laughs> you crack petroleum and get get the precursors. Right. But if we want to move on to other things and I, I don't think it's obvious that, you know, what the best feedstock is going to be if we wanted to replace petroleum. I think there are lots of options, but having, you know, ways to polymerize monomers that aren't necessarily olefins or even aldehydes is, is uh, you know, or esters or all sorts of things is would might help in the future. Sure, sure. You know, I, I mean, when it comes to needing uh, sustainable material production, having options is going to be incredibly yeah. beneficial. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's the luxury of being an academic too, is that you can, an academic with tenure, I guess, is you can think, <laughs> you can think for the, you know, you're doing stuff in the literature that people might look at 50 years from now, they might, you know, they might not ever again, but that's okay too. Yeah. You know, you think about some of the papers I dig up trying to find things are totally unrelated to, were totally unrelated to polymer chemistry at the time, but they still have value and are of interest. And I'm glad somebody else did them 50 years ago. So we don't have to do them. <laughs> <laughs> well, ideally, Many people will be glad you've done the work that actually many people are already glad that you've done the work you've done. So thank you for this. Thank you for that. And thank you again for being on the show. Before I close this out, is there any final comments that you'd like to add regarding our discussion today? Or maybe you have advice for grad students, anything you want to add? Oh, wow. 
well first let me thank you it was fun to my pleasure fun to chat yeah uh, you know i think this is the first no i was on a podcast a long time ago <laughs> but this is the second one all right well we're bringing you back into the game yeah yeah no i i don't know i can't think of anything wise enough to <laughs> that's that's no problem that's no <laughs> to pollute the airwaves but yeah. yeah if anyone wants to get in touch you know feel free to give them my contact info all right dr grubbs thank you so much for being on the show and thank you to my guests listening now this is the polymer science podcast my name is jacob sheckman and if you have any questions any comments or maybe you want to be on the show feel free to reach out to us at polymer science podcast at gmail.com as always thanks for listening and we'll see you later <laughs>